good morning. If you would turn your Bible uh, to John chapter 6, behold our God. That's the goal of worship, corporate worship, individual worship. Once you have beheld him, everything else is a mop-up operation, correct? Thank you, Adam, orchestra, Laura, our choir, for faithfully stewarding your responsibility to lead us in worship every week and preparing us for worship through the preaching of the Word of God. So grateful. Tonight, we're going to have our Regen Choir lead us in worship. So please plan to be here tonight. They are working hard. Today, they have, I think, a three-hour practice. For you Regen Choir members who may be complaining about a three-hour practice, uh, if they complain, Adam, tell them next time you'll put on helmets and you'll do it in the sun. Yeah. The complaining will be done. Well, if you would look with me in John chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray. Father, we desire to behold you in the face of Jesus Christ today through the preaching of the word. We pray that by the spirit we may do that. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So many of you men were introduced uh, to Rich Wingo on April the 1st when he came and spoke to our Beast Feast, to our men's uh, ministry. And as you know, I learned a great deal uh, from Coach Wingo. He was a strength and conditioning coach when I was in college in the 80s. Uh, but I often questioned him as well for some of his tactics. Um, there were two times that I remember in particular uh, where I especially questioned him. Uh, back in February, February the 24th of 1988, my grandfather died. He died at 63, just died suddenly of a heart attack. And it, it was a shock to us all. I was very close to him. He lived next door to me when I was growing up. And I got the call on a Wednesday night. And, of course, it was just a, a, a gut punch. And, but my first thought in the midst of my grief was, we have uh, lower gym workouts in the morning, 6 a.m., and it would be safer to hug a rattlesnake than to miss one of those workouts. But I needed to get home. So I called Coach Wingo, and I said, Coach, I was crying on the phone. And I said, Coach, my grandfather died suddenly, and I need to get home. And, I'm I, you know, we have workouts in the morning. He interrupted me. He said, you don't worry about workouts. You go home and take care of your family. And so that was very comforting from him. And so I went home, and uh, the following Sunday I come back. And my name was on the list for Don Patrol. Don Patrol uh, was punishment. Uh, Don Patrol were for guys who robbed a bank or killed somebody, all right? <laughs> and, and those workouts were 4.30 in the morning. 
And so I was really irritated. It was Sunday night. I wouldn't see him till Monday, so I couldn't sleep on, on Sunday night. So I went into his, his office on Monday, and I said, Coach, why is my name on the list for Dawn Patrol? I've been out of town. He said, you missed workouts. And I thought, okay. Uh, I know I had this conversation with him. He told me to go home. Don't worry about workouts. I said, well, Coach, you told me don't worry about that. Go home. And he said, BP, you've missed the point. He said, this isn't punishment. You missed a chance to get better. And now you're making it up. Well, I didn't enjoy his reasoning. <laughs> but I was at Dawn Patrol the next morning. 18 months later, I was in the weight room. It was a Tuesday afternoon. We were going to be in full pads that afternoon. And uh, there was a weight room rule where you didn't put the collar. You had to put the collars on the on the end of the bar so that the weights don't uh, slip off. But I had just the weight I needed, and those collars were five pounds each. It would have made it 10 pounds too much, and so I decided just to do the weight lifting without the collars. When I was done, Rich Wingo was standing over me, and he said, BP, where are your collars? I said, well, coach, it would have been 10 pounds too much, so I decided not to use the collars. He said, come with me. So I followed him, and we went out the back door of the weight room, which faced Coleman Coliseum. He said, I want you to run until I come get you. Well, I don't know how big Coleman Coliseum is. It's somewhere between a quarter of a mile and a half mile. But I ran, I kid you not, 13 laps. 13 laps, and by the time I had finished my 13 lap, the players were coming out for practice full pads. I'm still in shorts, and I am so mad. I walk into the weight room. And I look at him, I make a beeline to him, and I, and I said to him, I've, I have run 13 laps, I'll finish what I need to finish after practice, but it's time for practice. And he put his face in his hand, and he said, BP, I forgot about you. <laughs> I did not speak to him for three months, that's the truth. <laughs> so I had questions about him, but today, at the age of 54, having experienced a whole lot more life, I have learned that he knew what he was doing. In the first case, that was a trial, a storm of perfection. I had missed workouts. I had missed a chance to get better. And so I was making them up. In the latter case, it was a trial of correction. I had compromised. I had shown a lack of integrity, even in something small. And uh, he was correcting that. In both cases, trials, storms of perfection, trials and storms of correction. Rich Wingo knew what he was doing. Even when he forgot about me. <laughs> in Jesus, we have one who can be fully trusted. He never forgets about his people. He is always, always preparing his people, his disciples for glory and for our great commission. And for both, the strategy is the same. We just sang about it. It's to behold him. It's to behold him. It's to come to the place where we recognize we are weak we are impotent, but he is strong, and he is glorious. We have seen that most recently 
uh, in the feeding of the 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children, probably some 15 to 20,000 with the, the fishes and loaves. And, and the, the crowd certainly saw his power. And they perceived that he should be their king. But not because they had recognized him as the rightful son of David who would deliver them from their greatest problem, their sin, but because he had filled their stomachs. We'll see that later in John chapter 6. But Jesus was not willing to be crowned on that basis. He's not a health, wealth, and prosperity king. Verse 15, is before we get into our passage, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Matthew's accounts, and Matthew and Mark and Luke picked this account up. He tells us in Matthew 14, 23, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. John just assumes that we know that. He's up on the mountain. He's praying. The, the sort of kingship that they had in mind was not what he had in mind. His kingship, John 18, 36 tells us, would not be of this world. Jesus knew that the way his kingdom would triumph would not be by defeating military foes in some kind of siege warfare. But it would come by his cross and by his resurrection from the grave. And, and his cross and his resurrection and his ascension and his future return would bring about the, the kind of salvation that would not only save sinners spiritually, but save us physically. Indeed, would save the entire created order and make all things new. In other words, it would bring an end to all the effects of sin and death. But until that day, a, a day that Jesus was already ushering in by his obedience in the incarnate uh, state of humiliation that he was in, the people that he was and is redeeming would have to live out their faith in the context of, of brokenness. In, in, in the context of trial. Indeed, that brings us to our passage. And we see that submission to Jesus as Lord can bring storms in this life. But that is his strategy. That is his strategy. It's counterintuitive. Look with me in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, I want you to understand that they were in that boat by Jesus' command. Where do I get that from? Well, John doesn't say it, but Matthew and Mark do say that. John, uh, Matthew 14, listen to this. He made the disciples get into the boat. I mean, that's interesting. You, know, you could translate that word made as compelled. But he made the disciples get into the boat. That's why they're in the boat. It appears the disciples didn't really want to be in the boat. Now, why? Well, the last time they were in a boat with Jesus, 
a massive storm had hit, and Jesus was asleep in the boat. It just happened just a short time earlier before the feeding of the 5,000. Secondly, most of these disciples were fishermen, and perhaps all of them were experts on the Sea of Galilee. It's very likely they knew a storm was a-brewing. And so it doesn't appear they want to be in the, in the, vo- the boat. Um, but the fact is, they are there because Jesus wants them there. And they have submitted to him. It reminds me of walking my little seven-pound dog on July 4th evening. July 4th could also be called Scare Your Dog to Death Day. <laughs> it's not her favorite day of the week or year. And so, so these fireworks are going off, and, and I have to compel her to go on her walk. And she was pulling against me, all seven pounds of her. I mean, pulling, pulling. But she went on her walk. But she didn't go out of obedience. Uh, she went because she was forced to go. Well, in a real sense, I, I, that's how I pictured the disciples here on the boat, except uh, they have submitted to Jesus. They are, they are in that boat by glad submission, though they didn't want to be there. But look where their obedience has taken them. It says, it was now dark. Because of their obedience, it's now dark. That's counterintuitive to our Western thoughts about the way things should be. It was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. They must have felt, just like when Jesus was asleep in the boat, that Jesus was being neglectful. That he was leaving them to to face this storm and this darkness alone. Thomas Watson, in a wonderful book that I recommend, All Things for Good, it's an exposition, uh, an entire book written on Romans 8.28. God works all things together for the good of those that love God and call according to his purpose. So he has this book called All Things for the Good. And and he calls these times where it appears God has hidden his face from us, where, where he has absolutely separated himself from us as believers, times of desertion. And and he bases it on Song of Solomon 5, verse 6, which reads, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. And there's times we feel like that that's the way the Lord is with us. He's turned and he's gone. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And and uh, uh, Watson argues here that one way the Lord does this to, is to withdraw from us in a sense where we, we, we don't sense his comfort. And all of us have been there. He veils his face. This seems to be what Jesus has done with the disciples by separating himself from them. But here's what Watson says. Desertion works for good. Remember, all things work for good. Desertion works for good as it makes the true believer prize God's countenance more than ever. He's not really deserting us. It's this feeling that he has. And so there's this evident, palatable sense of desertion. Notice in verse 18, the sea 
became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So the Sea of Galilee, and uh, all of you that have been to Israel have been on this sea. It, it can be very peaceful at times and beautiful and glorious. When I was on it on a boat, it was just, the weather was amazing. They were playing music on the boat. And it just, it was hard to even imagine that you could have a storm on, on that lake. It's really a lake. But the sea sits 690, or this, the, the lake sits uh, 690 feet below sea level. And about 30 miles from the sea is Mount Hermon. And, and Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet high. And so that cold air from Mount Hermon uh, collides with that warm air coming off the sea, and it can create some massive, horrific storms. Now, keep in mind, as I said, these disciples have already been in one of those storms very recently out of obedience to Jesus' command. In fact, in Luke's account, here's what it says. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down in the lake and they were filling with water and, and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we're perishing. And he rewoke and rebuked the wind. And the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. And so they had learned that if Jesus is in the boat with you, uh, he can handle a storm. But now he's taken them to another level of training. Now he's not in the boat with them. He separated himself. But here's another point. Sometimes we can bring on storms because we disobeyed. It may be something little like leaving the collars off the end of the bar. But Jonah is a case in point. Uh, there were storms that Jonah experienced that had he just obeyed the Lord, he could have avoided those storms. But then there are other storms that you find yourself in because of obedience. Think about Joseph. When he obeyed the Lord and fled Potiphar's wife, it cost him prison. Think about Moses when he obeyed the Lord at the burning bush and it cost him a grumbling, discontented people for 40 years. It cost him. Think about the Apostle Paul uh, who could have avoided his persecution had he just refused to obey the Lord's commands. Think about Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, on and on we go. There are many storms that we go through out of obedience. And in this storm of perfection, here's what Matthew and Mark tell us. The wind was against them. They're in a storm, and it says the wind was against them. This is by all accounts a deadly storm. It's an impossible storm from a human perspective. And yes, the disciples, for their part, were very accomplished on boats. They would have been experts on a body of water. Maybe you've heard the adage, please don't amen this, God will not give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that? No, don't raise your hand. It's just not true. 
It is not a true statement. God will not give you more than you can handle. That is nonsense. It is unbiblical. Let me give you one passage, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We were burdened beyond our strength. That we despaired of life itself. But here's Paul's point, verse 9. Indeed, we felt we, that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us, here it is, to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If he doesn't give you more than you can handle, you will never rely on him. And so he is always placing us in situations and locations and in relationships that are beyond our strength, that are beyond our capacity, so that we will rely on his resources. And that's what Jesus has done here. He's training these disciples. He's training us. He's preparing them for the day that he will go away. They have, we have, a major assignment ahead called the Great Commission. It would be originally given to the disciples and then given to the church. But to get us there, to get to that place, they had to learn. We have to learn that we are nothing. But Jesus is everything. To get to that place, we have to learn that we are weak and impotent. But he is strong. To get to that place, we need to know that our greatest weakness is our delusions of strength. But our greatest strength is recognizing our weakness and in knowing that Jesus helps those who can't help themselves. He helps those who can't help themselves and are very aware they cannot help themselves. Mark's account tells us, and we'll come back to this in a few minutes, Jesus saw them. I love that. They're on the boat. He's not with them physically. They think he's just gone AWOL. And Mark 6, 48 tells us he saw them. We may not always see him. We may not always behold him. That's the goal. That's what we fight for every day. But he always sees us. And that's our hope. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. And so storms reveal Jesus' lordship over them. That's his strategy. So our obedience to the lordship of Jesus may bring storms, and that's his strategy. But when those storms come, those storms reveal Jesus' lordship over them, and that's his strategy for us. Look with me in verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. So it took about three or four miles before they saw him. And coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles wide at its broadest. And so the 12 had rowed three to four miles, which means 
They're in the middle of the lake. And they're in the middle of a storm. And they're not making progress at this point. That's what Matthew and Mark make clear. Now think about this. These guys were experts on a boat. They were experts on this body of water. But the Lord is always placing them. And he's always placing us in situations that require his grace, require his provision. He puts us in churches that require his grace. How often have you heard somebody say, I had to leave that church. Uh, There were just some people I, I just couldn't love. Could that not have been the Lord's strategy? To bring you to the end of yourself? To teach you how to love? I I couldn't find community there. Could that not have been the Lord's strategy to teach you that you don't find community? You create it by cruciform love. God, the Lord Jesus, is always putting us in situations. Not necessarily because he's angry with us or because he's... He's correcting us. He may just be perfecting us. He's putting us in situations daily that require his grace and his provision. And in the middle of this lake, in the middle of this storm, they, for the first time, see Jesus. There was a time he was veiled. But now they see Jesus and he is walking on the water and they are frightened of course they're frightened people don't walk on the water Uh, a lot of liberals will tell you well that that kind of supernatural stuff that's what they believed before the scientific revolution now we're we're not naive no they didn't they didn't believe that back then they didn't believe that men were raised from the grave that's why the disciples struggled after Jesus died men don't walk on water And here they are, they're in the middle of a storm, and they see Jesus walking on water as if it's a hardwood floor. And it frightened them. Job 9, 8 tells us, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. I wonder if, as John is writing this, he's thinking about that verse so, so what are the disciples learning about Jesus in this storm that we need to learn? Well, first of all, in spite of what you may feel, Jesus is aware and he cares. Jesus is aware and he cares. They didn't feel it. They didn't see it. But he was very aware of what they were going through. In fact, he had ordained it. That's why he told them to get in the boat. And and that's clear by the fact that he came to them. Mark 6 tells us this. Listen, it's verse 48. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. He saw it. He's aware. That's very comforting, okay? Second, he's not just aware. He's praying. Matthew's account tells us That he was up, as we saw earlier, he was up on the mountain praying. You know, and now in his exalted state, when he was in his state of humiliation, yes, he was always in a state of worship, um, but he had this 
you know, this sense where he, he didn't always pray. At times he was speaking. But now it says he, he ever lives in his exalted state to make intercession for us. He's always praying for us now as believers in his exalted state. Robert Murray McShane uh, once wrote, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But then he says, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Third thing that we learn about Jesus here that, that the, the disciples are learning in their storm of perfection, he sometimes delays in coming to our aid. Maybe you could almost use the word often delays in coming to our aid. That's why there's such a strong uh, impulse in the scripture to call us to wait on the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait, I say, on the Lord. It's a spiritual exercise. It's a means of grace to wait on him. He often delays in coming to our aid. He let his disciples get battered by the storm. And the reason we know he delayed is, again, Matthew and Mark's account tells us it was in the fourth watch of the night that he came to them. What is the fourth watch of the night? Between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And so they got in the boat early in the evening, and they've been in that storm all night. And he delayed in coming to them till the fourth watch of the night. Is it because he's impotent? Is it because he's trying to gather enough strength? No, he has strategy for the waiting. He's doing something in the waiting in you that would not happen if you didn't have to wait. I heard Charles Stanley say one time, the only thing harder than waiting on God is wishing that you had. And fortunately, these disciples waited. Fourth thing we can learn here is it is critical in the storms to stare until you see Jesus. To stare looking for him until you can see him in the storm. Oftentimes, at the early stages, you can't see it, see him. In fact, you can literally translate this. They beheld Jesus walking on the water. They saw him. They beheld him. And it's reminiscent of John 1, 14, where it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the disciples can't see him, and all of a sudden they see him. They're looking for Jesus. They can't see Jesus, but when Jesus wants to be seen, they see him. So how do we stare looking for Jesus until we see him? There are means by which we do that. You, you can't have a closed Bible and think you're going to see Jesus. You, you can't be... You can't just... Do a kind of hit and miss on the Lord's day with God's people and think you're going to see Jesus. We're to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together in one part, one reason, because we have to see Jesus. 
And God has given us corporate means by which we behold him and see him. But I want you to notice what they saw. What they saw was Jesus walking. They're in the middle. Have you ever been in a hurry and your spouse or one of your kids was just walking and you were wanting them to run? I've been in airports like that, right? Where you just, phew. well, Jesus is walking and they're in the middle of a hurricane. He's not jogging. He's not running. There's no panic with Jesus, just plans. He's walking. By the way, I think I got that from Al Jackson. No panic in heaven, just plans. He is walking on the water. He's in no hurry. There's no effort exerted on behalf of Jesus. He just walked. And here's a good principle for us, a good thought for us. Jesus is never in a hurry so we can rest and we can wait. All right? Jesus is in control so we don't have to be. And, and Jesus has already won. In fact, the end of John will tell us how, by his cross and his resurrection. Jesus has already won, so you don't have to. Isn't that so comforting? But this passage is reminiscent of Psalm 77, where the psalmist, after God delivered Israel through the Red Sea, writes this. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Your path was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. But get this. Your footprints were unseen. Your footprints were unseen. The fifth thing we can learn about Jesus in this account, maybe the most crucial, in fact, I would say it is the most crucial, that in the storms for believers, we learn new realities about his lordship. Look with me in verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, now this drives home that our greatest need, apart from our conversion and being made right with God, our greatest need is not to be preserved from storms. Our greatest need is a deeper recognition of who Christ is as Lord. And one of the ways he teaches that is through the storms. Now, where do I get that from this verse? Well, it's an unfortunate translation. And I looked at all the translations I could find. And when he says, it is I, the exact phrase there in Greek is ego eimi. Now, why do I say that? Because that phrase is found seven other times in John where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's ego eimi. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. All of those verses begin with ego eimi. And so it translates in our ESV here, it is I. But you could literally translate that, I am. In fact, ego means I am, and eimi means I am. You could literally translate this, I am, I am. As if Jesus was stuttering. But he's not stuttering. He's driving home 
a truth that we all must hold on to as believers. And what's interesting is that that phrase comes from Exodus 3 when Moses asked the Lord, what is your name? I am that I am. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, I am Lord. I don't have to be in the boat with you. I don't have to be right next to you to be Lord over this storm. Um, And what's interesting is that he appeals to his lordship for a reason not to fear. Notice he says, it is I, ego a me, there's no need to be afraid. Do not be afraid. Sometimes when I'm on a plane with Heather and we hit turbulence, I don't like turbulence. Brother Al hates snakes, I hate turbulence. And she automatically grabs my hand and starts patting me. But she says something crazy every time. Do not fear. It's just turbulence. Well, that doesn't comfort me. (laughs) Doesn't comfort me at all. This is comforting. It is I. I am the Lord. I am on the scene. I am sovereign. I am good. I am wise. I know what I'm doing. Do not be afraid. Amen. But a sixth thing we see here, and we'll close here, is that because Jesus is Lord, he is able to bring us to our destination. That brings us to the last verse of this passage, verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, I mean, this appears to be a miracle in itself. Immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It appeared the storm was going to take them off course. It appeared the trial was going to circumvent the Lord's plans for them, which was to get them to the other side. And yet, notice here in this passage, when he got into the boat, that was the end of the sea's resistance against their efforts. By his mere presence, the boat immediately reached its destination. And he he has an ultimate destination for all of us. It's the same. Glory. Home, as we sang this morning. He also has plans for each one of us that's the same. That will work out in different details. The Great Commission. And and that Great Commission is going to be worked out in various ways. Some of you will be one day overseas in full-time ministry. Some of you will be faithful businessmen or or coaches or stay-at-home moms or fill in the blank. But he is preparing you in whatever he has called you to do for the Great Commission. And there's no storm that's going to circumvent his destination for you. And that's what he's saying here right in this passage Jesus is able to get you to the place in which he has called you in spite of the storms. Let me close with this passage or this statement from Thomas Watson again. Again, this is from the book, All Things for Good. If we love God, now this is only to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior, you can say you love God, but you don't even know him. You can only know him through the Son. 
He says, if we love God, we have all winds blowing for us. Wow. Let me read that again. If we love God, we have all winds blowing for us. Everything in the world shall conspire for our good. We know not what fiery trials we may meet with. But to them that love God, all things shall work for good. That's Romans 8.28. Those things which works against them shall work for them. Their cross shall make way for a crown. Every wind shall blow them to the heavenly port. And how do we know that? Because we have the supreme prototype whose cross was made into a crown. And now crowned and enthroned at the right hand of the Father. He's ruling. He is Lord over all our storms, whether they be storms of correction or storms of perfection. That's one of the privileges of being a child of God in Jesus Christ. But I recognize not all of you are. And that's not a judgment. It's, a, it's a, actually a state that we were all in at one time. You're not born a child of God. You're born again to be a child of God. And so as Adam and our pastors come forward, our musicians come forward, we'll have pastors here at the end of the aisle. Um, maybe uh, you recognize I, Jesus isn't Lord of my life. I can't claim his lordship. I'm separated from him because of my sin. But recognize this, what he has done for sinners. He didn't just come to calm the storms. He came to die for sinners. He came to die for our sins. And he was raised from the grave, proving that the debt had been paid for those who would trust in him. And so I'd love to talk to you. We'll have pastors here that would love to talk to you or pray with you if you have questions about what it means to be under the lordship of Jesus. Or maybe you're a Christian and you've, you're struggling through a storm right now and you need prayer. Whatever the need is, won't you come as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.